0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. It's time for a Jack London story, and it kind of fits, because we just wrapped up Wyatt Earp Part 3 over at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and at least a few years of Wyatt Earp's life were spent up in the frozen Yukon, where he had the chance to meet a number of people, the most notable being the aspiring writer, Jack London. We have two Jack London stories for you today, the first story, called At the Rainbow's End, takes place in Alaska, and the second story, Chun-A-Chun, Chun, takes place in Hawaii. Both are great short stories, and I know you'll enjoy them. It was for two reasons that Montana Kid discarded his chaps and Mexican spurs and shook the dust of the Idaho Ranges from his feet. In the first place, the encroachments of a steady, sober, and sternly moral civilization had destroyed the primeval status of the western cattle ranges, and refined society turned the cold eye of disfavor upon him and his ilk. In the second place, in one of its Cyclopean moments, the race had arisen and shoved back its frontier several thousand miles. Thus, with unconscious foresight, did mature society make room for its adolescent members. True, the new territory was mostly barren, but its several hundred thousand square miles of frigidity at least gave breathing space to those who else would have suffocated back home. Montana Kidd was such a one. Heading for the seacoast, with a haste several sheriff's posses might possibly have explained, and with more nerve than coin of the realm, he succeeded in shipping from a Puget sound port and managed to survive the contingent miseries of steerage seasickness and steerage grub. He was rather sallow and drawn, but still his own indomitable self when he landed on the Daia Beach one day in the spring of the year. Between the cost of dogs, grub, and outfits, and the customs exactions of the two clashing governments, it speedily penetrated to his understanding that the Northland was anything save a poor man's mecca. So he cast about him in search of quick harvests. Between the beach and the passes were scattered many thousands of passionate pilgrims. These pilgrims' Montana kid proceeded to farm. At first he dealt faro in a pine-board gambling shack, but disagreeable necessity forced him to drop a sudden period into a man's life and to move on up trail. Then he effected a corner in horseshoe nails, and they circulated at par with legal tender, four to the dollar, till an unexpected consignment of a hundred barrels or so broke the market, and forced him to disgorge his stock at a loss. After that he located its sheep camp, organized the professional packers, and jumped the freight ten cents a pound in a single day. In token of their gratitude, the packers patronized his faro and roulette layouts, and were mulched cheerfully of their earnings. But his commercialism was of too lusty a growth to be long endured. So they rushed him one night, burned his shanty, "'divided the bank, and headed him up the trail with empty pockets. "'Ill luck was his running mate. "'He engaged with responsible parties to run whiskey across the line "'by way of precarious and unknown trails, "'lost his Indian guides, "'and had the very first outfit confiscated by the mounted police. "'Numerous other misfortunes tended to make him bitter of heart "'and wanton of action, "'and he celebrated his arrival at Lake Bennett by terrorizing the camp for twenty straight hours. Then a miners' meeting took him in hand, and commanded him to make himself scarce. He had a wholesome respect for such assemblages, and he obeyed in such haste that he inadvertently removed himself at the tail end of another man's dog-team. This was equivalent to horse-stealing in a more mellow clime, so he hit only the high places across Bennett and down Tagish, and made his first camp a full hundred miles to the north. Now it happened that the break of spring was at hand, and many of the principal citizens of Dawson were traveling south on the last ice. These he met and talked with, noted their names and possessions, and passed on. He had a good memory, also a fair imagination, nor was veracity one of his virtues. Part 2 "'Dawson, always eager for news, "'beheld Montana kids' sled heading down the Yukon "'and went out on the ice to meet him. "'No, he hadn't any newspapers. "'Didn't know whether Durant was hanged yet, "'nor who had won the Thanksgiving game. "'Hadn't heard whether the United States and Spain had gone to fighting. "'Didn't know who Dreyfus was. "'But O'Brien? "'Hadn't they heard? "'O'Brien! "'Why, he was drowned in the White Horse.' Sitka Charlie, the only one of the party who escaped. Joe Ledoux, both legs frozen and amputated at the five fingers. And Jack Dalton, blown up on the sea line with all hands. And Battles, wrecked on the Carthagena, in Seymour Narrows. Twenty survivors out of three hundred. And Swiftwater Bill, gone through the rotten ice of Lake labarge with six female members of the opera troupe he was convoying. "'Governor Walsh? Lost with all hands and eight sleds on the 30-mile. "'Devereaux? Who's Devereaux? "'Oh, the courier, shot by Indians on Lake Marsh.' "'And so it went. "'The B.S. was passed along. "'Men shouldered in to ask after friends and partners, "'and in turn were shouldered out, too stunned for blasphemy. "'By the time Montana Kid gained the bank,' he was surrounded by several hundred fur-clad miners. When he passed the barracks, he was the center of a procession. At the opera house, he was the nucleus of an excited mob, each member struggling for a chance to ask after some absent comrade. On every side, he was being invited to drink. Never before had the Klondike thus opened its arms to a Chichaqua. All Dawson was humming. Such a series of catastrophes "'had never occurred in its history. "'Every man of note who had gone south in the spring "'had been wiped out. "'The cabins vomited forth their occupants. "'Wild-eyed men hurried down from the creeks and gulches "'to seek out this man who had told a tale of such disaster. "'The Russian half-breed wife of Bettles "'sought the fireplace, inconsolable, "'and rocked back and forth, "'and ever and anon flung white wood ashes upon her raven hair.' the flag at the barracks flopped dismally at half-mast. Dawson mourned its dead. Why Montana Kid did this thing, no man may know. Nor beyond the fact that the truth was just not in him, can explanation be hazarded. But for five whole days, he plunged the land into wailing and sorrow, and for five whole days, he was the only man in the Klondike. The country gave him its best of bed and board. The saloons granted him the freedom of their bars. Men sought him continuously. The high officials bowed down to him for further information, and he was feasted at the barracks by Constantine and his brother officers. And then one day, Devereux, the government courier, halted his tired dogs before the gold commissioner's office. "'I'm dead?' "'Who said so?' "'Give him a moose-steak, and he'd show them how dead he was. "'Why, Governor Walsh was in camp with a little salmon, "'and O'Brien coming in on the first water. "'Dead? "'Give him a moose-steak, and he'd show them.' "'And forthwith Dawson hummed. "'The barracks' flag rose to the masthead, "'and Betel's wife washed herself and put on clean raiment. "'The community subtly signified its desire.' that Montana Kid obliterated himself from the landscape. And Montana Kid obliterated, as usual, at the tail end of someone else's dog team. Dawson rejoiced when he headed down the Yukon and wished him Godspeed to the ultimate destination of the case-hardened sinner. After that, the owner of the dogs bestirred himself, made complaint to Constantine, and from him received the loan of a policeman. Part 3 With Circle City in prospect and the last ice crumbling under his runners, Montana Kid took advantage of the lengthening days and traveled his dogs late and early. Further, he had but little doubt that the owner of the dogs in question had taken his trail, and he wished to make American territory before the river broke. But by the afternoon of the third day, it had become evident that he had lost in his race with Spring— The Yukon River was growling and straining at its fetters. Long detours became necessary, for the trail had begun to fall through into the swift current beneath, while the ice, in constant unrest, was thundering apart in great, gaping fissures. Through these and through countless air holes, the water began to sweep across the surface of the ice, and by the time he pulled into a woodchopper's cabin on the point of an island, the dogs were being rushed off their feet, "'and were swimming more often than not. "'He was greeted sourly by the two residents, "'but he unharnessed and proceeded to cook up. "'Donald and Davy were fair specimens "'of frontier inefficience, "'Canadian-born, city-bred Scots. "'In a foolish moment they had resigned "'their counting-house desks, "'drawn upon their savings, "'and gone Klondiking. "'And now they were feeling "'the rough edge of the country, grubless. "'spiritless, with a lust for home in their hearts. "'They had been staked by the PC company "'to cut wood for its steamers. "'With the promise at the end of a passage home. "'Disregarding the possibilities of the ice run, "'they had fittingly demonstrated their inefficiency "'by their choice of the island on which they located. "'Montana Kid, though possessing little knowledge "'of the breakup of a great river,' "'looked about him dubiously "'and cast yearning glances "'at the distant bank "'where the towering bluffs "'promised immunity "'from all the ice "'of the Northland. "'After feeding himself "'and dogs, "'he lighted his pipe "'and strolled out "'to get a better idea "'of the situation. "'The island, "'like all its river brethren, "'stood higher at the upper end, "'and it was here "'that Donald and Davy "'had built their cabin "'and piled many cords of wood.' The far shore was a full mile away, while between the island and the near shore lay a back channel perhaps a hundred yards across. At first sight of this, Montana Kid was tempted to take his dogs and escape to the mainland. But on closer inspection, he discovered a rapid current flooding on top. Below, the river twisted sharply to the west, and in this turn its breast was studded by a maze of tiny islands. "'That's where she'll jam,' he thought to himself. "'Half a dozen sleds, evidently bound upstream to Dawson, "'were splashing through the chill water to the tail of the island. "'Travel on the river was passing from the precarious to the impossible, "'and he was nip and tuck with them till they gained the island "'and came up the path of the woodchoppers toward the cabin. "'One of them, snow-blind, "'towed helplessly at the rear of a sled,' Husky young fellows they were, rough garmented and trail worn, yet Montana Kid had met the breed before and knew at once that it was not his kind. Hello, how's things up Dawson Way? queried the foremost, passing his eye over Donald and Davy and settling it upon the kid. A first meeting in the wilderness is not characterized by formality. The talk quickly became general. "'and the news of the upper and lower countries "'was swapped equitably back and forth. "'But the little the newcomers had was soon over with, "'for they had wintered at Minook, "'a thousand miles below, where nothing was doing. "'Montana Kid, however, was fresh from salt water, "'and they annexed him while they pitched camp, "'swapping him with questions concerning the outside, "'from which they'd been cut off for about twelve months. "'A shrieking split!' suddenly lifting himself above the general uproar on the river, drew everyone to the bank. The surface water had increased in depth, and the ice, assailed from above and below, was struggling to tear itself from the grip of the shores. Fissures reverberated into life before their eyes, and the air was filled with multitudinous crackling, crisp and sharp, like the sound that goes up on a clear day from the firing line. From up the river, two men were racing a dog-team toward them on an uncovered stretch of ice. But even as they looked, the pair struck the water and began to flounder through. Behind where their feet had sped the moment before, the ice broke up and turned turtle. Through this opening the river rushed out upon them to their waist, burying the sled and swinging the dogs off at right angles in a drowning tangle but the men stopped their flight to give the animals a fighting chance, and they groped hurriedly in the cold confusion, slashing at the detaining traces with their sheath-knives. Then they fought their way to the bank through swirling water and grinding ice, where foremost in leaping to the rescue among the jarring fragments was the kid. "'Why, blimey, if it ain't Montana Kid!' exclaimed one of the men whom the kid was just placing upon his feet at the top of the bank. He wore the scarlet tunic of the mounted police and jocularly raised his right hand in salute. Got a warrant for you, kid, he continued, drawing a bedraggled paper from his breast pocket, and I hope you'll come along peaceable. Montana Kid looked at the chaotic river and shrugged his shoulders, and the policeman, following his glance, smiled. Where are the dogs? his companion asked. "'Gentlemen,' interrupted the policeman, "'this here mate of mine is Jack Sutherland, "'owner of the 22 Dorado." "'Not Sutherland of 92!' "'Broke in the snow-blinded Minook man, "'groping feebly toward him. "'The same!' Sutherland gripped his hand. "'And you?' "'Oh, I'm after your time. "'But I remember you in my freshman year. "'You were doing PG work then.' Boys, he called, turning half about. This is Sutherland, Jack Sutherland, erstwhile fullback on the varsity. Come up, you gold chasers, and fall upon him. Sutherland, this is Greenwich, played quarter two seasons back. Yes, I read of the game, Sutherland said, shaking hands, and I remember that big run of yours for the first touchdown. Greenwich flushed darkly under his tan skin and awkwardly made room for another. "'And here's Matthews, Berkeley man, "'and we've got some eastern cracks knocking about, too. "'Come up, you Princeton men, come up. "'This is Sutherland, Jack Sutherland.' "'Then they fell upon him heavily, carried him into camp, "'and supplied him with dry clothes and numerous mugs of black tea. "'Donald and Davy, overlooked, "'had retired to their nightly game of crib. "'Montana Kid followed them with the policeman. "'Here, get into some dry togs,' he said, pulling them out from his scanty kit. "Guess you'll have to bunk with me, too.' "'Well, I say, you're a un the policeman remarked as he pulled on the other man's socks. "'Sorry I gotta take you back to Dawson, but I only hope they won't be hard on you.' "'Not so fast,' the kid smiled curiously. "'We ain't underway yet. "'When I go, I'm going river, and I guess the chances are you'll go along.' "'Not if I know myself. "'Come on outside, I'll show you then. "'These damn fools, "'thrusting a thumb over his shoulder at the two Scots, "'played smash when they located here. "'Fill your pipe first, this is a pretty good plug, "'and enjoy yourself while you can. "'You haven't many smokes remaining.' "'The policeman went with him wonderingly, "'while Donald and Davy dropped their cards and followed. "'The Manuk men noticed Montana Kid pointing now up the river, now down, and came over. "'What's up?' Sutherland demanded. "'Nothing much.' Nonchalance sat well upon the kid. "'Just a case of raising hell and putting a chunk under. See that bend down there? That's where she'll jam millions of tons of ice. Then she'll jam in the bends up above. Millions of tons. Upper jam breaks first. Lower jam holds.' Poof! He dramatically swept the island with his hand. Millions of tons,' he added, reflectively. "'And what are the wood piles?' Davy questioned. The kid repeated his sweeping gestures, and Davy wailed. "'The labor of months! It cannot be! "'Nah, nah, lad, it cannot be! "'I do this not a joke! Ah say that it is!' he appealed. But when the kid laughed harshly and turned on his heel, Davy flung himself upon the piles and began frantically to toss the cordwood back from the bank. "'Lend a hand, Donald!' he cried. "'Can you no lend a hand? It's a labor of months in the passage home.' Donald caught him by the arm and shook him, but he tore free. "'Did you no hear, man? Millions of tons, and the island shall be swept clean.' "'Straighten yourself up, man,' said Donald. "'It's a bit fast, you are.' But Davy fell upon the cordwood. Donald stalked back to the cabin, buckled on his money-belt and Davy's, and went out to the point of the island where the ground was highest and where a huge pine towered above its fellows. The men before the cabin heard the ringing of his axe and smiled. Greenwich returned from across the island with the word that they were penned in. "'It was impossible to cross the back channel now. "'The blind Minook man began to sing, "'and the rest joined in with, "'Wonder if it's true. "'Does it seem so to you? "'Seems to me he's lying. "'Oh, I wonder if it's true.' "'It's a sinful,' Davy moaned, "'lifting his head and watching them dance "'in the slanting rays of the sun. "'And my good wood a gone to waste.' Oh, I wonder if it's true. Oh, I wonder if it's true, was flaunted back. The noise of the river ceased suddenly. A strange calm wrapped about them. The ice had ripped from the shores and was floating higher on the surface of the river, which was rising. Up it came, swift and silent, for twenty feet, till the huge ice cakes rubbed softly against the crest of the bank. The tail of the island, being lower, was overrun. Then, without effort, the white flood started downstream. But the sound increased with the momentum, and soon the whole island was shaking and quivering with the shock of the grinding bergs. Under pressure, the mighty cakes, weighing hundreds of tons, were shot into the air like peas. The frigid anarchy increased its riot, "'and the men had to shout into one another's ears to be heard. "'Occasionally the racket from the back channel "'could be heard above the tumult. "'The island shuddered with the impact of an enormous cake "'which drove in squarely upon its point. "'It ripped a score of pines out by the roots, "'then, swinging around and over, "'lifted its muddy base from the bottom of the river "'and bore down upon the cabin, "'slicing the bank and trees away like a gigantic knife.' It seemed barely to graze the corner of the cabin, but the cribbed logs tilted up like matches, and the structure, like a toy house, fell backward in ruin. "'The labor of months and the passage home!' Davy wailed, while Montana Kid and the policeman dragged him backward from the woodpiles. "'You'll have plenty of opportunity all in good time for your passage home,' the policeman growled, clouding him alongside the head. "'and sending him flying to safety. "'Donald, from the top of the pine, "'saw the devastating berg sweep away the cordwood "'and disappear downstream. "'As though satisfied with this damage, "'the ice flood quickly dropped to its old level "'and began to slacken its pace. "'The noise likewise eased down, "'and the others could hear Donald shouting from his eerie "'to look downstream. "'As forecast. THE JAM HAD COME AMONG THE ISLANDS IN THE BEND, AND THE ICE WAS PILING UP IN A GREAT BARRIER WHICH STRETCHED FROM SHORE TO SHORE. THE RIVER CAME TO A STANDSTILL, AND THE WATER, FINDING NO OUTLET, BEGAN TO RISE. IT RUSHED UP TILL THE ISLAND WAS AWASH, THE MEN SPLASHING AROUND UP TO THEIR KNEES, AND THE DOGS SWIMMING TO THE RUINS OF THE cabin. AT THIS STAGE IT ABRUPTLY BECAME STATIONARY, WITH NO PERCEPTIBLE RISE OR FALL. "'Montana Kid shook his head. "'It's jammed above, and no more's coming down. "'And the gamble is, which jam will break first, isn't it?' said Sutherland. "'Exactly,' the Kid affirmed. "'If the upper jam breaks first, we don't have a chance. "'Nothing will stand before it.' "'The Minook men turned away in silence, but soon—' Rumsky ho floated upon the quiet air, followed by the orange and the black. Room was made in the circle for Montana Kidd and the policeman, and they quickly caught the ringing rhythm of the choruses as they drifted on from song to song. "'Oh, Donald, will you no lend a hand?' Davy sobbed at the foot of the tree into which his comrade had climbed. "'Donald, man, will you no lend a hand?' he sobbed again his hands bleeding from vain attempts to scale the slippery trunk. But Donald had fixed his gaze upriver, and now his voice rang out, vibrant with fear. "'God Almighty, here she comes!' Standing knee-deep in the icy water, the Minook men, with Montana Kid and the policeman, gripped hands and raised their voices in the terrible Battle Hymn of the Republic but the words were drowned in the advancing roar. And to Donald was vouchsafed a sight such as no man may see and live. A great wall of white flung itself upon the island. Trees, dogs, men were blotted out as though the hand of God had wiped the face of nature clean. This much he saw, then swayed an instant longer in his lofty perch and hurtled far out into the frozen hell. Thanks for joining us for this first story, At the Rainbow's End, by Jack London. Today, as promised, another Jack London short story for your enjoyment, called Chun A Chun. One of Jack London's best stories from his Hawaii collection is about a Chinese coolie who becomes a multimillionaire and father of 15 wondrously beautiful children. Anticipating the suits and cross-litigation with which his westernized children Will descend upon his fortune he first provides for them all and then moves out of their legal reaches and what makes it great it's based upon and very close to a real story after this short story we'll add a little history on chun a chun and now our story there was nothing striking in the appearance of chun a chun he was rather undersized as chinese go and the Chinese narrow shoulders and spareness of flesh were his. The average tourist, casually glimpsing him on the streets of Honolulu, would have concluded that he was a good-natured little Chinese, probably the proprietor of a prosperous laundry or tailor shop. In so far as good nature and prosperity went, the judgment would be correct, though beneath the mark. For A-Chan was as good-natured as he was prosperous, and of the latter no man knew a tithe the tale. "'It was well known he was enormously wealthy, "'but in his case enormous was merely the symbol for the unknown. Adchan had shrewd little eyes, black and beady, "'and so very little that they were like gimlet holes. "'But they were wide apart, "'and they sheltered under a forehead "'that was patently the forehead of a thinker. "'For Adchan had his problems, and had had them all his life. "'Not that he ever worried over them. "'He was essentially a philosopher.' and whether as coolie or multi-millionaire and master of many men, his poise of soul was the same. He lived always in the high equanimity of spiritual repose, undeterred by good fortune, unruffled by ill fortune. All things went well with him, whether they were blows from the overseer in the cane-field, or a slump in the price of sugar when he owned those cane-fields himself. Thus, from the steadfast rock of his sure content, he mastered problems such as are given to few men to consider, much less to a Chinese peasant. He was precisely that, a Chinese peasant, born to labor in the fields all his days like a beast, but fated to escape from the fields like the prince in a fairy tale. Ah A-Chan did not remember his father, a small farmer in a district not far from Canton. Nor did he remember much of his mother, who had died when he was six. But he did remember his respected uncle, A-Ko, for him he had served as a slave from his sixth year to his twenty-fourth. It was then that he escaped by contracting himself as a coolie to labor for three years on the sugar plantations of Hawaii for fifty cents a day. A-Chun was observant. He perceived little details that not one man in a thousand ever noticed. Three years he worked in the field, and at the end of which time he knew more about cane-growing than the overseers or even the superintendent, while the superintendent would have been astounded at the knowledge the weasened little coolie possessed of the reduction processes in the mill. But Ah Chun did not study only sugar processes. He studied to find out how men came to be owners of sugar mills and plantations. One judgment he achieved early, namely, that men did not become rich from the labor of their own hands. He knew, for he had labored for a score of years himself. The men who grew rich did so from the labor of the hands of others. That man was richest who had the greatest number of his fellow creatures toiling for him. So when his term of contract was up, Ah-Chun invested his savings in a small importing store, going into partnership with one ah Young. The firm ultimately became the great one of ah Chung and ah Young, which handled anything from India silks and ginseng to guano islands and blackbird brigs in the meantime Ah chun hired out as cook he was a good cook and in three years he was the highest paid chef in honolulu his career was assured and he was a fool to abandon it as danton his employer told him but a chun knew his own mind best and for knowing it was called a triple fool and given a present of fifty dollars over and above the wages due him The firm of Ah Chung and Ah Young was prospering. There was no need for Ah Chun longer to be a cook. There were boom times in Hawaii. Sugar was being extensively planted, and labor was needed. Ah Chun saw the chance and went into the labor importing business. He brought thousands of Cantonese coolies into Hawaii, and his wealth began to grow. He made investments. His beady black eyes saw bargains where other men saw bankruptcy. He bought a fish pond for a song which later paid 500%, and was the opening wedge by which he monopolized the fish market of Honolulu. He did not talk for publication, nor figure in politics, nor play at revolutions, but he forecast events more clearly and farther ahead than did the men who engineered them. In his mind's eye, he saw Honolulu, a modern, electric-lighted city at a time when it straggled, unkempt, and sand-tormented over a barren reef of uplifted coral rock, So he bought land. He bought land from merchants who needed ready cash, from impecunious natives, from riotous traders' sons, from widows and orphans and the lepers deported to Molokai. And somehow, as the years went by, the pieces of land he had bought proved to be needed for warehouses, or coffee buildings, or hotels. He leased and rented, sold and bought, and resold again. But there were other things as well. He put his confidence and his money into Parkinson, the renegade captain whom nobody would trust. And Parkinson sailed away on mysterious voyages in the Little Vega. Parkinson was taken care of until he died, and years afterward Honolulu was astonished when the news leaked out that the Drake and Acorn Guano Islands had been sold to the British Phosphate Trust for three-quarters of a million dollars. Then there were the fat, lush days of King Kalakua, when Ah Chun paid $300,000 for the opium license. If he paid a third of a million for the drug monopoly, the investment was nevertheless a good one, for the dividends brought him the Kalalau Plantation, which in turn paid him 30% for 17 years and was ultimately sold by him for a million and a half. It was under the Kamehamehas, long before that he had served his own country as Chinese consul, a position that was not altogether unlucrative. And it was under Kamehameha IV that he changed his citizenship, becoming an Hawaiian subject in order to marry Stella Allendale, herself a subject of the brown-skinned king, though more of Anglo-Saxon blood ran in her veins than of Polynesian. In fact, the random breeds in her were so attenuated that they were valued at eighths and sixteenths. In the latter proportions was the blood of her great-grandmother, Peihao, the Princess Peihao, for she came of the royal line. Stella Allendale's great-grandfather had been a Captain Blunt, an English adventurer who took service under Kamehameha I, and was made a taboo chief himself. Her grandfather had been a New Bedford whaling captain, while through her own father had been introduced a remote blend of Italian and Portuguese, which had been grafted upon his own English stock. Legally a Hawaiian, Achun's spouse was more of any one of three other nationalities. A spouse was more than any one of three other nationalities. And into this conglomerate of the races, Achun introduced the Mongolian mixture. Thus, his children by Mrs. Achun were one-thirty-second Polynesian, one-sixteenth Italian, one-sixteenth Portuguese one-half Chinese, and eleven-thirty-seconds English and American. It might well be that A-Chan would have refrained from matrimony could he have foreseen the wonderful family that was to spring from this union. And it was wonderful in many ways. First there was its size. There were fifteen sons and daughters, mostly daughters. The sons had come first, three of them, and then had followed, in unswerving sequence, a round dozen of girls. The blend of the race was excellent. Not alone fruitful did it prove, for the progeny, without exception, was healthy and without blemish. But the most amazing thing about the family was its beauty. All the girls were beautiful, delicately, ethereally beautiful. Mama ah rotund lines seemed to modify Papa ah lean angles so that the daughters were willowy without being lathy, round-muscled without being chubby. In every feature of every face were haunting reminiscences of Asia, all manipulated over and disguised by Old England, New England, and South of Europe. No observer, without information, would have guessed the heavy Chinese strain in their veins, nor could any observer, after being informed, fail to note immediately the Chinese traces. As beauties, the Chun girls were something new. Nothing like them had been seen before. They resembled nothing so much as they resembled one another, and yet each girl was sharply individual. There was no mistaking one for another. On the other hand, Maud, who was blue-eyed and yellow-haired, would remind one instantly of Henrietta, an olive brunette with large, languishing dark eyes and hair that was blue-black. The hint of resemblance that ran through them all, reconciling every differentiation, was Ah-Chun's contribution. He had furnished the groundwork upon which had been traced the blended patterns of the races. He had furnished a slim-boned Chinese frame, upon which had been builded the delicacies and subtleties of Saxon, Latin, and Polynesian flesh. Mrs. Chun had ideas of her own to which ah Chun gave credence, though never permitting them expression when they conflicted with his own philosophic calm. She had been used all her life to living in European fashion. Very well. Achan gave her a European mansion. Later, as his sons and daughters grew able to advise, he built a bungalow, a spacious rambling affair, as unpretentious as it was magnificent. Also, as time went by, there arose a mountain house on Tantalus, to which the family could flee when the sick wind blew from the south. And at Waikiki, he built a beach residence on an extensive site so well chosen that later on, when the United States government condemned it for fortification purposes, an immense sum accompanied the condemnation. In all his houses were billiard and smoking rooms and guest rooms galore, for Ah chuns wonderful progeny was given to lavish entertainment. The furnishing was extravagantly simple. King's ransoms were expended without display, thanks to the educated tastes of the progeny. Ah chun had been liberal in the matter of education, Never mind expense. He had argued in the old days with Parkinson when that slack mariner could see no reason for making the Vegas seaworthy. You sail the schooner, I pay the bills. And so with his sons and daughters. It had been for them to get the education, and never mind the expense. Harold, the eldest born, had gone to Harvard and Oxford. Albert and Charles had gone through Yale in the same classes. And the daughters, from the eldest down, had undergone their preparation at Mills Seminary in California, and passed on to Vassar, Wellesley, or Bryn Mawr. Several, having so desired, had had the finishing touches put on in Europe, and from all the world, Achan's sons and daughters returned to him to suggest and advise in the garnishment of the chast magnificent of his residences. Achan himself preferred the voluptuous glitter of Oriental display, but he was a philosopher and he clearly saw that his children's tastes were correct according to Western standards. Of course, his children were not known as the A-Chun children. As he had evolved from a coolie laborer to a multi-millionaire, so had his name evolved. Mama A-Chun had spelled it A-apostrophe-Chun, but her wiser offspring had deleted the apostrophe and spelled it Ah chun -chun. A-C-H-U-N. A-Chun did not object, the spelling of his name interfered no whit with his comfort nor his philosophic calm. Besides, he was not proud. But when his children arose to the height of a starched shirt, a stiff collar, and a frock coat, they did interfere with his comfort and calm. Ah Chen would have none of it. He preferred the loose flowing robes of China, and neither could they cajole nor bully him into making the change. They tried both courses and in the latter one failed especially disastrously. They had not been to America for nothing. They had learned the virtues of the boycott as employed by organized labor, and he, their father, Chun A-Chun, they boycotted in his own house, Mama Achan chun aiding and abetting. But A-Chun himself, while unversed in Western culture, was thoroughly conversant with Western labor conditions. An extensive employer of labor himself he knew how to cope with its tactics. Promptly he imposed a lockout on his rebellious progeny and erring spouse. He discharged his scores of servants, locked up his stables, closed his houses, and went to live in the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, in which enterprise he happened to be the heaviest stockholder. The family fluttered distractedly on visits about with friends, while Ah Chun calmly managed his many affairs, smoked his long pipe with the tiny silver bowl, and pondered the problem of his wonderful progeny. This problem did not disturb his calm. He knew in his philosopher's soul that when it was ripe, he would solve it. In the meantime, he enforced the lesson that, complacent as he might be, he was nevertheless the absolute dictator of the Chun destinies. The family held out for a week, then returned, along with Chun and the many servants, to occupy the bungalow once more. And thereafter, no question was raised when Achan elected to enter his brilliant drawing room in blue silk robe, wadded slippers, and black silk skull cap with red button peak, or when he chose to draw at his slender-stemmed silver bowl pipe among the cigarette and cigar smoking officers and civilians on the broad verandas or in the smoking room. Achan occupied a unique position in Honolulu though he did not appear in society, he was eligible everywhere. Except among the Chinese merchants of the city, he never went out, but he received, and he always was the center of his household and the head of his table. Himself peasant, born Chinese, he presided over an atmosphere of culture and refinement second to none in all the islands. Nor were there any in all the islands too proud to cross his threshold and enjoy his hospitality. First of all, the Achan bungalow was of irreproachable tone. Next, Achan was a power. And finally, Achan was a moral paragon and an honest businessman. Despite the fact that business morality was higher than on the mainland, Achan outshone the businessmen of Honolulu in the scrupulous rigidity of his honesty. It was a saying that his word was as good as his bond. His signature was never needed to bind him. He never broke his word. Twenty years after Hotchkiss, of Hotchkiss Mortars and Company, died, they found among mislaid papers a memorandum of a loan of $30,000 to ah Chun. It had been incurred when ah Chun was privy counselor to Kamehameha 2. In the bustle and confusion of those heyday, money-making times, the affair had slipped ah Chun's mind. There was no note, no legal claim against him, but he settled in full with the Hotchkiss' estate voluntarily paying claim against him, voluntarily paying a compound interest that dwarfed the principal. Likewise, when he verbally guaranteed the disastrous Kakiku ditch scheme at a time when the last sanguine did not dream a guarantee necessary. He signed his check for 200000 without a quiver, gentlemen, without a quiver, was the report of the secretary of the defunct enterprise, who had been sent on the forlorn hope of finding out Ah-Chun's intentions. And on top of the many similar actions that were true of his word, there was scarcely a man of repute in the islands that at one time or another had not experienced the helping financial hand of Ah-Chun. So it was that Honolulu watched his wonderful family grow up into a perplexing problem and secretly sympathized with him, for it was beyond any of them to imagine what he was going to do with it. "'but Ah Ah-Chun saw the problem more clearly than they. "'No one knew as he knew "'the extent to which he was an alien in his family. "'His own family did not guess it. "'He saw that there was no place for him "'amongst this marvel of seed of his loins, "'and he looked forward to his declining years "'and knew that he would grow more and more alien. "'He did not understand his children. "'Their conversation was of things that did not interest him "'and about which he knew nothing.' the culture of the West had passed him by. He was Asiatic to the last fiber, which meant that he was heathen. Their Christianity was to him so much nonsense. But all this he would have ignored as extraneous and irrelevant could he have but understood the young people themselves. When Maud, for instance, told him that the housekeeping bills for the month were thirty thousand, that he understood, as he understood Albert's request "'for five thousand with which to buy the schooner-yacht Muriel "'and become a member of the Hawaiian Yacht Club. "'But it was their remoter, complicated desires "'and mental processes that obfuscated him. "'He was not slow in learning that the mind of each son and daughter "'was a secret labyrinth which he could never hope to read. "'Always he came upon the wall that divides east from west. Their souls were inaccessible to him, "'and by the same token, he knew that his soul was inaccessible to them. Besides, as the years came upon him, he found himself harking back more and more to his own kind. The reeking smells of the Chinese quarter were spicy to him. He sniffed them with satisfaction as he passed along the street, for in his mind they carried him back to the narrow, tortuous alleys of Canton, swarming with life and movement. He regretted that he had cut off his cue to please Stella Allendale in the prenuptial days, and he seriously considered the advisability of shaving his crown and growing a new one. The dishes his highly paid chef concocted for him failed to tickle his reminiscent palate in the way that the weird messes did in the stuffy restaurant down in the Chinese quarter. He enjoyed vastly more a half-hour's smoke and chat with two or three Chinese chums, than to preside at the lavish and elegant dinners for which his bungalow was famed, where the pick of the Americans and Europeans sat at the long table, men and women on equality, the women with jewels that blazed in the subdued light against white necks and arms, the men in evening dress, and all chattering and laughing over topics and witticisms that, while they were not exactly Greek to him, did not interest him or entertain. But it was not merely his alienness and his growing desire to return to his Chinese flesh-pots that constituted the problem. There was also his wealth. He had looked forward to a placid old age. He had worked hard. His reward should have been peace and repose. But he knew that with his immense fortune, peace and repose could not possibly be his. Already there were signs and omens. He had seen similar troubles before. There was his old employer, Danton, whose children had wrested from him, by due process of law, the management of his property, having the court appoint guardians to administer it for him. ah Chun knew, and knew thoroughly well, that had Danton been a poor man, it would have been found that he could quite rationally manage his own affairs. An old Danton had had only three children and a half a million, while he, Chun ah Chun, had fifteen children, and no one but himself knew how many millions. Our daughters are beautiful women, he said to his wife one evening. There are many young men. The house is always full of young men. My cigar bills are very heavy. Why are there no marriages? Mama A-chan shrugged her shoulders and waited. Women are women, and men are men. It is strange there are no marriages. Perhaps the young men do not like our daughters. Ah, they like them well enough, Mama-chan answered but you see, they cannot forget that you are your daughter's father. Yet you forgot who my father was, A-chan said gravely. All you asked was for me to cut off my cue. The young men are more particular than I was, I fancy. What is the greatest thing in the world? A-chan demanded with abrupt irrelevance. Mama A-chan pondered for a moment, then replied, God! He nodded. There are gods and gods. Some are paper, some are wood, some are bronze. I use a small one in the office for a paperweight. In the Bishop Museum are many gods of coral rock and lava stone. But there is only one god, she announced decisively, stiffening her ample frame argumentatively. ah Chun noted the danger signal and sheered off. What is greater than god, then? he asked. I will tell you, it is money. In my time I have had dealings with Jews and Christians, Mohammedans and Buddhists, and with little black men from the Solomons in New Guinea who carried their god about them wrapped in oiled paper. They possessed various gods, these men, but they all worshipped money. There is that Captain Higginson. He seems to like Henrietta. He will never marry her, retorted Mama Achun. He will be an admiral before he dies. A rear admiral, Ah chun interpolated. Yes, I know. That is the way they retire. Their family in the United States is a high one. They would not like it if he married, if he did not marry an American girl. A-Chun ah knocked the ashes out of his pipe, thoughtfully refilling the silver bowl with a tiny pledget of tobacco. He lighted it and smoked it out before he spoke. Henrietta is the oldest girl. The day she marries, I will give her $300,000. That will fetch that Captain Higginson and his high family along with him. Let the word go out to him. I leave it to you. And Ah-Chan sat and smoked on, and in the curling smoke wreaths he saw take shape the face and figure of, of Toy Shui. Toy Shui, the maid of all work in his uncle's house in the Cantonese village, whose work was never done, and who received for a whole year's work one dollar. And he saw his youthful self arise in the curling smoke his youthful self who had toiled eighteen years in his uncle's field for little more. And now he, Achan, the peasant, dowered his daughter with three hundred thousand years of such toil. And she was but one daughter of a dozen. He was not elated at the thought. It struck him that it was a funny, whimsical world, and he chuckled aloud and startled Mama Achan from a reverie which he knew lay deep in the hidden crypts of her being, where he had never penetrated. But ah Chun's word went forth as a whisper, and Captain Higginson forgot his rear-admiralship and his high family, and took to wife $300,000 and a refined and cultured girl who was one-thirty-second Polynesian, one-sixteenth Italian, one-sixteenth Portuguese, eleven-thirty-seconds English and Yankee, and one-half Chinese. ah Chun's munificence had its effect. His daughters became suddenly eligible and desirable. Clara was the next, but when the Secretary of the Territory formally proposed for her, Ah-Chun informed him that he must wait his turn, that Maud was the oldest, and that she must be married first. It was shrewd policy. The whole family was made vitally interested in marrying off Maud, which it did in three months, to Ned Humphreys, the United States Immigration Commissioner. Both he and Maud complained, for the dowry was only 200,000. Ah-Chun explained that his initial generosity had been to break the ice, and that after that his daughters could not expect otherwise than to go more cheaply. Clara followed Maud, and thereafter, for a space of two years, there was a continuous round of weddings in the bungalow. In the meantime, Ah Ah-chan had not been idle. Investment after investment was called in. He sold out his interest in a score of enterprises, and step by step, so as not to cause a slump in the market, he disposed of his large holdings in real estate. Toward the last, he did precipitate a slump and sold at sacrifice. What caused this haste were the squalls he saw already rising above the horizon. By the time Lucille was married, echoes of bickerings and jealousies were already rumbling in his ears. The air was thick with schemes and counter-schemes to gain his favor and to prejudice him against one or the other or all but one of his sons-in-law. All of which was not conducive to the peace and repose he had planned for his old age. He hastened his efforts. For a long time he had been in correspondence with the chief banks in Shanghai and Macau. Every steamer for several years had carried away drafts drawn in favor of one Chun Ah Chun for a deposit in those far eastern banks. The drafts now became heavier. His two youngest daughters were not yet married. He did not wait but dowered them with a hundred thousand each, which sums lay in the bank of Hawaii, drawing interest and awaiting their wedding day. Albert took over the business of the firm of Ah and Ah young Harold, the eldest, having elected to take a quarter of a million and go to England to live. Charles, the youngest, took a hundred thousand, a legal guardian, and a course in a Keeley Institute. To Mama Ah was given the bungalow, the mountain house on Tantalus, and a new seaside residence in place of the one Achan sold to the government. Also to Mama Achan was given half a million in money, well invested. Achan was now ready to crack the nut of the problem. One fine morning when the family was at breakfast, he had seen to him that all his sons-in-law and their wives were present. He announced that he was returning to his ancestral soil. In a neat little homily, he explained that he had made ample provision for his family, and he laid down various maxims that he was sure he said, would enable them to dwell together in peace and harmony. Also he gave business advice to his sons-in-law, preached the virtues of temperate living and safe investments, and gave them the benefit of the encyclopedic knowledge of industrial and business conditions in Hawaii. Then he called for his carriage, and in the company of the weeping Mama Achan, was driven down to the Pacific mail steamer, leaving behind him a panic in the bungalow. Captain Higginson clamored wildly for an injunction, The daughters shed copious tears. One of their husbands, an ex-federal judge, questioned Ah Chun's sanity and hastened to the proper authorities to inquire into it. He returned with the information that Ah Chun had appeared before the commission the day before, demanded an examination, and passed with flying colors. There was nothing to be done, so they went down and said goodbye to the little old man who waved farewell from the promenade deck as the big steamer poked her nose seaward through the coral reef but the little old man was not bound for Canton. He knew his own country too well, and the squeeze of the Mandarins, to venture into it with the tidy bulk of wealth that remained to him. He went to Mikao. Now Achan had long exercised the power of a king, and he was as imperious as a king. When he landed at Makao and went into the office of the biggest European hotel to register, the clerk closed the book on him. Chinese were not permitted. Achan called for the manager and was treated with contumely. He drove away, but in two hours he was back again. He called the clerk and manager in, gave them a month's salary, and discharged them. He had made himself the owner of the hotel, and in the finest suite he settled down during the many months the gorgeous palace in the suburbs was building for him. In the meantime, with the inevitable ability that was his, he increased the earnings of his big hotel. From 3% to 30. The troubles Ah Chun had flown began early. There were sons in laws that made bad investments, others that played ducks and drakes with the Ah Chun dowries. Ah Chun being out of it, they looked at Mama Ah Chun and her half million, and looking engendered not the best of feeling toward one another. Lawyers waxed fat in the striving to ascertain the construction of trust deeds. Suits, cross suits, and countersuits cluttered the Hawaiian courts. Nor did the police courts escape. There were angry encounters in which harsh words and harsher blows were struck. There were such things as flower pots being thrown to add emphasis to winged words, and suits for libel arose that dragged their way through the courts and kept Honolulu agog with excitement over the revelations of the witnesses. In his palace, surrounded by all dear delights of the Orient, Achan smokes his placid pipe and listens to the turmoil overseas. By each mail-steamer, in faultless English, type written on an American machine, the letter goes from Mecao to Honolulu, in which, by admirable texts and precepts, Achan advises his family to live in unity and harmony. As for himself, he is out of it all, and well-content. He is one to peace and repose. At times he chuckles and rubs his hands, and his slant little black eyes twinkle merrily at the thought of the funny world. For out of all his living and philosophizing, that remains to him, the conviction that it is a very funny world. And now the story of the man who inspired Jack London's story. Chun Afong, from Hawaiian Time Machine, Views of Hawaii. Spotlight on Chung Afong. Invariably described as the first Chinese millionaire in Hawaii, his was the silks-to-riches story of an immigrant from the Mayeksi village in Guangdong province who started out in 1849 in a chapel lane shop in Honolulu, not far from King Street. There he sold coveted Chinese cloths, quality dishwares, teas and spices to American and British residents, and Hawaiian court ladies. In a brief six years, he was a wealthy pillar of the Chinese community, and from then on, things only got better. In 1857, he married Julia Fairweather, the 17-year-old hapahaoli granddaughter of a Hawaiian chief, and foster sister of Kalakua, with whom he eventually had four sons and 12 daughters. His business activities were equally as productive. In the 1870s, he was partner in a sugar plantation on the Hamakua coast. By 1884, he owned a sugar mill there, acquired interest in other sugar and coffee plantations and operated a ship that carried cargo between Honolulu and Hong Kong. His social position also advanced. He gained the favor of Kalakua by supporting him in his bid for the throne in 1874, and was appointed a noble of the Hawaiian Kingdom in 1879. He grew more active politically. With other sugar planters he sided with the king in favor of the reciprocity treaty with the U.S., and helped frustrate Robert Wilcox's attempt to overthrow the native government in 1889. After Chun Lung, his son by his first Chinese wife, died in 1889, Afong sold all but a third of his interest in the Hamakua plantation and returned to China with his younger son, Tony, leaving behind his wife, Julia, and his other children. He settled in his old village of Maexi, where he was known as Chen Fang, and became a benefactor of the people. Upon his death in 1906, at the age of 81, three elaborate memorial archways were constructed there in his honor by Emperor Guangzhou. Thanks very much for joining us at Prime Cuts. Hope you enjoyed this very special short story today, and we'll have more surprises for you soon. Thank you for your support as Patreon supporters, and we hope you encourage others to support as well and enjoy our stories at Prime Cuts. Thank you.